This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I would like to welcome everybody here today to our final presentation of our series on aging and well-being. Uh, my name is Louise Walter. I'm the chief of the Division of Geriatrics here at UCSF. Um, I'm standing in for Dr. Anna Chodos, who's been your course director through the, this time because she's in a, at a meeting over in New Orleans. Um, so I'm here to uh, give some introductions. Um, I'd also, she said, make sure you tell everybody thank you for your enthusiastic and thoughtful uh, attendance and uh, participation and uh, to let everybody know that these slides as well as all the, all the talks that you've heard during this series will be on, uh, on the website. So this will ultimately get up there too. So let me, with no further ado, I'm gonna introduce our stellar lineup of speakers. So we have three speakers tonight, Rebecca Sudori, Sarah Hooper, and Sarah Huffman. So Rebecca Sudori is a professor of medicine in the UCSF Division of Geriatrics. She's a clinician researcher um, and a geriatrician and a hospice and palliative, me- uh, palliative care physician. Uh, she sees patients at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. Her research focuses on the intersection of health literacy, geriatrics, advanced care planning, and informed medical decision making. Her current research program focuses on designing and testing interactive web-based interventions to prepare patients and their surrogate decision makers how to make complex medical decisions over the course of serious illness and chronic illness. Then we have Sarah Hooper. Um, She is the executive director of the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on Law, Science, and Health Policy, an adjunct professor of law at UC Hastings College of Law. She develops interprofessional programs for faculty and students, including education curriculum, uh, research, and clinical training and service programs. In particular, Sarah has led the consortium's effort to establish a clinic called the Medical Legal Partnership for Seniors Clinic um, and is now working to expand the reach of that clinic to other sites. Um, let's see, she's also looking at educational outreach and community uh, for in the community and research on policy initiatives. So the Medical Legal uh, Partnership for Seniors Clinic uh, is operating out of the UCSF Center for Geriatric Care. I don't know if people are familiar with that in the Institute on Aging building. Um, it, uh, her research focuses on the legal issues in aging and dementia care including health care decision-making and informed consent around capacity decision-making, elder financial abuse, and the link between health and access to civil justice and models of comprehensive and coordinated care. And then last but not least, we have Sarah Huffman. Sarah Huffman graduated from UC Hastings College of Law in 2014, and she works with the UCSF UC Hastings Medical Legal Partnership for Seniors Clinic that I mentioned earlier, which provides legal assistance for older adults um, and their uh, their medical providers, I guess who are referred by their medical providers at the UC Center for Geriatric Care as well as for homebound uh, patients uh, that we see through our UC Care at Home program. 
Uh, she's currently an Equal Justice Works, uh, Equal Justice Works Fellows, uh, which is sponsored by PG&E and Lotham and Watkins LLP. Her fellowship project is focused on expanding the clinic, uh, um, I guess to build into it to be uh, focused on the San Francisco VA Medical Center, uh, where she provides legal um, assistance to veterans who are in the geriatrics and the palliative care clinic at the San Francisco VA. Um, and her project has the support from Tideswell at UCSF, which is a program that sponsors innovative uh, innovations to advance community-centered care for the aging. And I could probably go on and on because there's lots of really great stuff that this, these three have done. Um, but I will, I will leave it at that. And also let everybody, I guess, remind everybody that um, we will hold questions till the end. And then the, all three speakers will uh, answer questions all at once. So with no further ado, the first speaker. All right. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to tonight's session of Advanced Care Planning. Um, I'm Sarah Huffman. So the purpose of tonight's session really is to shed some light um, on really how medical decisions happen in the real world and to give you all some very practical advice and tools to help make sure that each and every one of you can make the healthcare decisions that are right for you. So tonight we're going to be going over what is advanced healthcare planning, what types of legal forms to document your wishes, why additional preparation is needed, some easy tools for you all for advanced care planning. And then at the end, we're going to have a Q&A session and help folks complete forms if they would like to. So what is advanced care planning? It's a process that supports adults at any age or stage of health in understanding and sharing their personal values, life goals, and preferences regarding future medical care. So really, the goal is to ensure that you receive the care that lines up with your values, your goals, and your preferences in case you ever have a serious or chronic illness. So for many people, part of this process also includes uh, choosing one or more people that you trust to make medical decisions for you in case there's ever a time where you're not able to make those decisions for yourself. So planning for health care is really just one piece of the puzzle. It is the, the topic that we're talking about tonight, but it's really important to mention that legal and financial decisions overlap with health care. Um, for example, medical care, particularly for older adults, um, means that health care decisions can often be both legal and financial decisions as well. So the tools that we're going to be talking about tonight um, to help you appoint a medical decision maker and state your wishes about your medical care um, should also fit and make sense with the rest of your financial and legal planning as well. So now I am going to turn it over to Sarah Hooper, who is going to talk to you about the types of legal forms. Okay, so you get two, two lawyers, both named Sarah. Uh, not a requirement of bar passage, in case you were wondering uh, just how it lined up tonight. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about legal forms. Um, and the main takeaway from tonight is that legal forms are necessary, but they're not sufficient. Um, and in particular, Rebecca is going to talk a lot about why communication um, is such an important part of this process. But of course, documentation um, is also really important. So um, there 
are different forms that are used for different purposes, and so it's helpful to understand in what situations each is uh, good to use. Um, and typically, the forms uh, serve three different purposes. So the first is to clarify who you want to make decisions. The second is what kind of decisions you want that person to be able to make. And the third thing is how you want them to decide. So who is important, uh, particularly in California, because the law in California actually does not give family members automatic authority to step in to make decisions for you should you need um, help with that. Um, and if physicians allow family members to step in anyway, which they do often do in practice, it can sometimes be very unclear who actually is speaking for you in the way that you would want. Um, so by making this choice carefully and clearly ahead of time, you can help your providers and you can help your family and friends um, be prepared for that moment uh, when someone might need to, to step in for you. Um, and in thinking about what kind of decisions, um, the decision maker you choose only has as much power as you give them. Um, and most forms allow you to say how much power uh, and which decisions you want them to make. So for instance, say you want one daughter to decide about end-of-life care and you want a son to make decisions about long-term care or where you might live if you were ever in a situation where you couldn't decide that for yourself. Um, and this is absolutely possible to do with forms. Um, so you can think about it in the same way that we have a Constitution of the United States, or we hope we still have one, um, that says, <laughs> apologies for the editorial, I couldn't help myself. Um, so in the same way that the Constitution says what different branches of government and what states can do, you can create a Constitution of you. Who are the people that are authorized to do what? Um, and these are, the, these are the people that I trust to do these things and perhaps no more. Um, and so how, what are the values and preferences that you hold um, that you want to guide these people or this person's decision making? Um, if you are religious or spiritual, how strongly do your beliefs influence the way uh, that you think about medical care? This can vary from person to person. So sometimes physicians might know that you are a Catholic, but they don't know how strongly you hold those beliefs or whether or not those beliefs have anything to do with the decisions that um, might be at hand. So it's helpful to clarify and not assume uh, that people will understand what you want ahead of time. So let's look at the forms. So the durable power of attorney for health care can answer the who and what question. Um, these allow you to legally appoint someone to speak for you when you no longer can and allow you to specify which decisions you want them to make and which uh, perhaps not, and importantly, when you want them to make decisions. So sometimes you can have an advanced directive or a durable power of attorney that kicks in right away, or you could have one that only kicks in once you're no longer able to make decisions for yourself. That, that can be up to you to decide. Um, and these generally do not contain specific treatment decisions or goals of care, um, which is fine if you're not ready to think about those issues yet um, and you don't have any imminent decisions to make and perhaps all you want to do at this stage is say, who is the person that will make decisions for me when I can? Um, and naming the person to speak for you is probably one of the most important things that you can do. So if all you want to get done is this piece, um, it's absolutely possible to do just that piece and not the rest of it. And it's an important decision. Um, you know, Think, thinking about who your healthcare agent should be and what makes a good healthcare agent should be something that you think about very carefully. Um, 
Many people think of their healthcare agent as needing to be their spouse, um, and some people kind of perceive this as a competition of who loves me most or a popularity contest among kids. Um, and that, I'm here to tell you, is sort of the wrong way to think about it. Um, this is really a job. And it can be a very difficult job. Um, and so you want to think about you know, this as a person who may need to navigate the healthcare system on your behalf. We have a deeply fragmented healthcare system in the United States. Um, and they may need to navigate that system for you for a fair amount of time. Um, so they should have some endurance. Um, they will need to be able to ask questions and fill out paperwork, uh, possibly facilitate family discussions and make emotional decisions and mundane decisions as well. Um, so you want to think about and focus on the tasks that a healthcare agent uh, will face and think about who in your network of family and friends um, would be best suited to that role. So here are some features of a good healthcare agent. Um, importantly, a good healthcare agent will know that they are your healthcare agent. Um, you would be surprised how many people arrive in clinic or arrive uh, in our offices saying, I just found out that I'm the surrogate for this person, and I have no idea what to do. Um, and that is not a position that you want to leave your decision maker in. Um, so they should know that they are your decision maker. They should be willing to take on a role. Um, that's unfortunately a situation I've seen as well, that uh, family members assume that someone else in the family will, will take on this responsibility. And when it comes time, that caregiver, that daughter, whoever that is, says, I can't handle this. No, I, I don't want this responsibility. And they're not obligated to take on the role. Um, they should be available when needed. Um, so, you know, practical things like could they get out here uh, if the time came? Uh, would they? Are they involved in your care um, on a daily basis? Do they know what's going on? Um, they should know you and your values well, and they should be willing to put your wishes and values above their own, or at least treat decision making in the same way that you would. Right to stand in your shoes. Um, they should be willing to ask doctors or other people questions. Um, I'll just mention again that there may be a number of physicians, other clinicians, nurses, social workers, others that this person will need to collaborate with in making sure that you get good care. Um, they should be able to handle tough decisions. Um, and they should be healthy enough to take on the role. So one thing that I've also seen um, in our work is that spouses will appoint one another and then they will both be equally frail when the time comes to make decisions. And the other spouse isn't in a good position to navigate the healthcare system in a way that their wife or husband might need. Um, and so that's also a reason to think carefully about who a backup agent might be if you want your spouse to make decisions for you for a certain period of time. Um, who would be the person that would step in if your spouse is unavailable? Um, good to think about that. And I'll just say it again, a good agent isn't necessarily the person who loves you most. Um, it's the person that can handle this responsibility. Um, so that's thinking about how to choose a healthcare agent. Um, the other type of form is the living will or advanced directive. Um, and these documents address the how. How do you want this person and your clinicians to make decisions for you? So these are the documents in which you can state your goals and preferences and wishes and sometimes uh, specific treatment decisions. Um, 
when combined with the power of attorney appointment, the, that's what's known as an advanced directive. Um, and so you can do those in the same document. Now, a POLST is a relatively new document in the last several years. A POLST is a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. Um, it is a physician's order that is immediately actionable and is intended for very seriously ill patients who are nearing the end of life. Um, and the POLST provides specific treatment decisions at the very end of life. They do not appoint an agent, so that's not the document to use for that. Um, and again, this is a physician's order. It's not a um, legal document uh, per se. Um, so it must be signed by a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a physician's assistant, and by you or by your decision maker. Um, so it's a very useful tool. It's not appropriate for all of us for advanced care planning. It's more for imminent um, health care decision making. Um, so how to think about thinking about goals and preferences. Um, a first thing to note is you want to plan for what you can anticipate and then plan to revisit. So for a long time, we had this framework that um, advanced care planning was a one-and-done deal. You met with your lawyer, you met with your uh, health care provider, you met with your family members, you filled out your paperwork, and then you stuck it in a drawer somewhere and didn't think about it again. But what we're realizing is that this is not helpful because your preferences and values and goals um, and your health status changes over time, right? And your family structure might change over time. And so we think of it as more of an iterative event. So focusing on what you can actually plan for is probably the best use of your time when thinking about goals and preferences, right? So I think of it in two buckets. There's just-in-case planning, and then there's a situation where you have a known diagnosis um, or a known prognosis. So in the first bucket, the just-in-case planning, those tools are advanced directives or living wills, and your goals and values can be very broad, right? Um, and you would really only want to think about specific uh, treatment goals if you have um, very specific beliefs that are likely to endure over time. So for instance, you're a Jehovah's Witness, you feel very strongly about refusing blood transfusion, um, and you feel that 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 viewpoint is unlikely to change in the future, that's an example of a specific treatment decision that you could put an advanced directive well in advance of any kind of imminent um, health condition that you might be facing. And then with a known diagnosis or a prognosis, again, advanced directives, and then depending on um, your health status, a pulse, these can be more specific, um, and you'll want to get guidance from your physician about what exactly to uh, put in there, um, and ask to be educated about your condition and options. Um, so just to give you an example, um, Terry Schiavo, that case I think has made a huge impression um, in the public's mind and, and in certainly in the law. Um, and in one of the studies that I work on, I've seen a lot of advanced health care directives come in with very specific instructions about what the patient would want if they were in a persistent vegetative state. But that patient is not in a persistent vegetative state, and they're in, they have some other diagnosis and prognosis. And so those specific instructions are completely unhelpful to the clinicians who are now trying to make decisions about this person's care. So just as an illustration of that, you want to think about you know, what is it that we're actually planning for and get your physician's help in, in crafting that. Um, 
so engaging them and then um, ask your physician to help reframe for you the discussion from treatment to quality of life. So physicians are trying really hard to provide you the best possible care. And they're thinking, should I put this tube in or should I not put this tube in? And what you're thinking is, what's going to happen once he or she puts the tube in or doesn't put the tube in? You're thinking about, what will my life be like? And so you might need to ask. You might need to ask them to rephrase in that particular way um, so that you can get on the same page about what, what goals are. Um, so just to summarize, um, in comparing legal forms, the advanced directive is a pre-made form or draft your own that you can tailor. The POLST is a standardized form and the pulse are pink. Um, the advanced directive, and here I'm referring to the advanced directive as a combined document, it appoints an agent, whereas the POLST does not appoint an agent. Um, in the advanced directive, you can have personalized instructions, and they can be very broad or they can be very specific. In the POLST, they are fairly specific instructions with checkboxes. Um, the advanced directive is for any adult with any health decision. Um, and again, the POLST is for the seriously ill um, who are at imminent risk of incapacity or end of life. Um, the advanced directive requires a patient's signature, your signature, plus a witness or a notary. Um, and the POLST as a medical order needs to be signed by a clinician, um, plus the patient, you, or your legal representative. Um, and the advanced directive, it's really incumbent on you to make sure that your agent or your clinician and anyone else who works with you has this document. If you put it in a drawer, it's not going to be very helpful, um, even though I know it's very, very tempting for all of us to do that. Um, whereas the POLST is meant to follow your chart across settings. Um, it's integrated with your medical chart most of the time. Um, and so it's meant to be a little bit more integrated into care. But again, the POLST is really only meant for a certain subset of individuals in the community. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca, who's going to talk about why additional preparation is needed. Thanks, Sarah. Hello, I'm Rebecca Sidori. I'm a geriatrician and a palliative care physician. And I do want to talk to you a little bit about advanced care planning, kind of from the clinical perspective. Um, and I think the big thing when I think about advanced care planning is how can we preserve our own stories? And what I mean by that is who are we as people and how can we translate that so that we can make sure that we get the medical care that's right for us? So before I get started, can I just ask this crowd, how many of you have chosen a healthcare agent or a surrogate decision maker? Wow, this is an activated crowd. How many of you have completed an advanced, direct, advanced directive form? This is great, a good number of you. All right, so that's good. Um, but I think we still have a lot of work to do because in my role, again, as a geriatrician, someone who sees older adults throughout their life course, and as a palliative care physician, sometimes seeing people very sick and in the hospital, I see two major deficits in our healthcare system. One is that people are not empowered to really know what is important to them and to be able to speak up, especially in a medical crisis. And their loved ones are often not empowered. Sarah talked about how important it is to choose the right people to help make medical decisions for you. 
But if we don't talk to them, that can be difficult. And often, even when we do talk to them, they don't feel empowered in those situations to speak up and be an advocate. So when I talk about advanced care planning, I'm sort of talking about redefining what we mean by planning. So redefining the planning and advanced care planning from just filling out an advanced directive to preparing people to make complex, ongoing medical decisions and to communicate with providers. So asking the right questions, and as Sarah was talking, it's not just about CPR or resuscitation. It's really about what brings life meaning and what is important to me. And so all that being said, I want to tell you how the medical environment thinks about advanced care planning because you might have to push back a little bit. So the traditional view of advanced care planning really is to have patients make treatment decisions like CPR, in advance of serious illness so that we can try to attempt to give you the care that you want. Those things are good. And oftentimes, as Sarah was talking about, we do that in advanced directives, and that is good. But as Sarah said, we often think about this as a one-and-done situation. We get the form. Maybe you filled it out 10 years ago, but if it's in our chart, we're never going to ask you about it again because it's a one and done. And I think clinicians, just like lawyers, we like our check boxes, but we are not check boxes and people's lives change over time. So I think when we think about advanced directives in real life, what's going on? So again, when we just think about the forms, oftentimes we're very much only focusing again on these treatment uh, or life-sustaining treatments such as CPR. I'll tell you that for older adults who have serious illness, oftentimes these forms are completed. This is not this crowd, um, which is great, but usually over 55% of the time they're not completed. They usually have difficult uh, legal language, and they're hard to understand. And the other thing is a form in and of itself often doesn't prepare people for sort of some of these crazy, unanticipated decisions that people might have to make in the medical environment. And folks, I will tell you that clinicians have the best of intentions, but they often are not trained to have these conversations with you. And even if they wanted to, they often don't have time. So again, we have to sort of advocate for ourselves. So as Sarah was talking about, advanced directives are critically important, and they are a critical piece of what we do in the medical environment. We, you have our easy-to-read advanced directive that we gave um, to you guys, and we've actually shown in randomized trials that these forms help people complete them. They like them better than some of the standard forms. These forms are free. You can give them to all of your friends. Um, but really the question comes back, are advanced directives enough? And so I can tell you in the research that we've done, we've talked to a lot of patients and their family members, and I'm going to read you a quote from one of our focus groups from someone who had to make medical decisions from someone, for someone else. And she said, we got the DNR or do not resuscitate in writing, but in making the decisions, which there were many, that was just one. Because the first decision was to put him in a nursing home. We were married 30 years, and I could no longer take care of him. Then the second decision was whether to put him on a feeding tube, because he had, he had stopped eating, and I wasn't ready to let him go. And I think sort of we know as people that no form or checkbox will ever eliminate the uncertainty and the complexity of the human condition. 
Though I will say in the healthcare environment, we keep trying to do that to people. And I think we as a group sort of need better preparation so that we are prepared when we come into the medical environment. And the one thing, again, we do know from studies is that when people and their loved ones are unprepared, this leads to uninformed choices, especially in a crisis, a spiral of unwanted medical care, and oftentimes studies are showing stress and post-traumatic stress syndrome for families that have had to help make these medical decisions. So again, how do we prepare so that we can preserve our stories and who we are? So again, sort of one of these missing puzzle pieces to advanced care planning is that really, if we do it right, it should, prepare, it should actually prepare people with skills to identify what is most important and how they want to live their life. And that is evolving over time. How do, we, how do we communicate with loved ones and providers about what's important to us? And how do we make informed medical decisions? And I sort of like to say, you know, from the clinical environment, have we, doctors, been asking the wrong questions? So as we were saying, and as Sarah alluded to, it is not a breathing machine, it's not CPR, and it's not surgery. It's how will your life be after that treatment, and how do you want to live? And I have this picture about the cart sort of before the horse, and I think we as clinicians, and I will tell you, and I'm sure many of you have this similar experience, when you go to a doctor, they ask you about treatment. They don't ask you who you are. They don't ask you how you want to live your life. And we have to be empowered so that we can share that information with the doctors so that we can get the medical care that we want. And we often get asked, how does this spiral of unwanted medical care happen? And I have this cartoon here that says, everything looks like a nail. And I have to say, from a doctor's perspective, we're trained to treat. We're trained to try to cure. We have tools in our toolbox. And when somebody comes to us, we use them, even if it's not the right thing to do. And again, the question is, really, what will my life be like after treatment? I'm going to read you another quote from a focus group. Are we reviving him, sticking the tube in so that he can suffer more? I guess it goes back to what happens if you revive him. Is he going through that whole process again? It's the end result. So sort of what do we do? How can we make this easier? And so I'm going to talk about some easy-to-use tools for advanced care planning. So the goal really was to create free, easy-to-use tools that could be used at home, or in the community to prepare people for interacting with their providers and making a lot of these medical decisions that you might be making over time. We also created um, an interactive multimedia website called Prepare for Your Care. And this is free. You can go to it at any time. I think you guys have the pamphlets and maybe some of the pens. Um, and I'm just going to walk you through sort of the five-step process. Um, one, how do you choose a medical decision maker? Two, how do you decide what matters most in life? Three, choosing flexibility for your decision maker. Four, how do you tell others about your wishes? Five, asking doctors the right questions. And then it gives you a chance sort of to write down an action plan if you feel like doing one of these steps. So I'm just going to tell you very briefly, when we created this website, we took into account 
behavior change theory? How do we sort of ourselves get ourselves to do something like advanced care planning? We had an expert panel. I've read you some of the quotes from the focus groups. I would say that we really developed this with and for the community um, of both patients and surrogates. And I think the key about the website that's a little different from other things is that it has videos. And the videos don't just say that you should do something. They really show people how to do something. So if you're having difficulty figuring out, boy, how could I ask my you know, husband, wife, or friend to play the role of being a medical decision for, you know, maker for me, there's a video that will show you how to do that. So we tried to make sure that it was easy to understand and sort of targeted the fifth grade reading level. There's voiceovers of all the text and closed captioning. And they're really a range of videos and stories. So this is tailored to some people who don't have a surrogate decision maker or don't want one, and that's okay. And there are different people who feel differently about making medical decisions, and that's okay too. So I'm just going to show you some screenshots from the website now. So again, sort of really focused on how do you do it. So how would you ask somebody to be a medical decision maker or a healthcare agent? We actually give people words they could actually use. And frankly, even if you don't want to do this, you could sit down next to somebody and sort of hit the play button, and they can watch it with you. Um, if you're having a hard time overcoming barriers to advanced care planning, these show videos with stories about people who have overcome those barriers. These are videos about how you could tell others about your wishes, including your large family who may not always get along. And how do you ask doctors the right questions? Again, coming back to what's my life going to be like and making sure that you're getting the care that's important to you. Um, as you go through the website, it asks you those questions, again, about values and goals. What's important to you? How do you want to live your life? And it compiles them in a summary of your wishes. The site will also save your answers, so you can go back and forth sort of over time, especially as those change. And you can share this with your family and friends. There's something that actually gets printed out so that you can actually share with your medical provider. Um, I will tell you just very briefly that we've actually, again, we designed this with and for uh, the communities that we serve in San Francisco, and we actually did some pilot testing. And we found that the baseline, some of the patients that we worked with, these were uh, uh, individuals from a senior center. The mean age was 70 years, and 92% had never used a computer. And we're a little daunted about thinking about starting to use this computer program. At baseline, 40% had engaged in some form of advanced care planning. But one week later, 100% of people were able to engage in some form of advanced care planning. And what we were happy to see is that people rated the website a 9 out of 10 for ease of use. So we really went out of our way to make it easy to use. Um, I'm also working, actually, with Sarah Hooper and UC Hastings School of Law that we're actually wrapping those easy-to-read advanced directives that you have into the website, so you'll be able to, again, write down your values and wishes and goals about your life, as well as have that wrapped into a legal advanced uh, directive document. 
Um, for any of you who feel like putting on a party for advanced care planning in your own, if any of you go to libraries, churches, or senior centers, I'm going to show you some things about the website because we actually have toolkits that you could go and have a party about this and play some of these videos and actually start talking about advanced care planning with people in your community. Um, so I want to make sure that everybody has a handout of our easy-to-read advanced directive and the prepare pamphlet. And if you don't, we'll make sure that you get that on the way out. Um, and then I was going to actually play one of the steps of the prepare website. And again, by doing this, I'll be able to show you how you could play this again in a, in a library or senior center. But I'm going to ask to take a vote because we can't see all of them, and we're only going to play one. And so we're either going to see the first one, which is how to choose a medical decision maker, or we're going to do number two, decide what matters most in life. So how many people want to see step one, choose a medical decision maker? So just a few. How many people want to see, decide what matters most in life? Okay, we're going for number two. All right. Um, well, when you come to the website, it'll ask you if you want to sign in or sign up or if you just want to skip the sign up. I will say that most people skip the sign up just so that they can go right to the information. Um, and then you have an opportunity to sign up after the fact if you want to save your information. And again, this can be nice because you can go back, you can change, you can show your family and friends. Um, but here are the five different steps here. And for any of you that actually want to uh, play this, like I said, in a senior center, church, or a library, if you click Other Stuff, you'll see that it comes where you can actually print out the pamphlet that you have with you, and you can play the prepare video right here. And what this will do, instead of going through the website step-by-step, -step, you can play videos. And so we're going to play Decide What Matters Most in Life. Step two, decide what matters most in life. Deciding what matters most in your life can help you get the medical care that is right for you. Your doctors and decision maker need to know what's really important to you. This information can help you make your own medical decisions and can help us make sure you get the care that matches your wishes. Let me give you two examples of what I mean. One of my patients, Mr. Nelson, had very bad cancer. The next treatment he could have tried may have extended his life a few months, but would have made him very sick and he might have needed to spend some time in the hospital. Mr. Nelson told me that being at home with his family was the most important thing to him. He did not want to stay in the hospital. Knowing this, we gave him another treatment that was not as strong against the cancer, but allowed him to stay at home. When he could no longer make his own decisions, his family continued to honor his wishes by keeping him comfortable at home. Mrs. Santos was another patient of mine. She was in a similar situation with very bad cancer, but she told me that what was most important to her was to live long enough to see her daughter graduate even if it meant having to be in the hospital for a while and being uncomfortable. Knowing this, Mrs. Santos and I talked about how there were no guarantees. It might work, it might not work, but that we would move forward with a strong cancer treatment with the hope 
that we could help her reach her goal. So, what is most important in your life? Talk about it with your doctors and decision makers. It's the best way to make sure you get the medical care that is right for you. How to decide what matters most in life. Over the next few minutes, we will ask you five questions. These five questions will help you decide what matters most in your life and for your medical care. Knowing what is most important in life can help you decide on medical care that is right for you. What is most important in your life? Family or friends? Religion? Hobbies? Pets? Living on your own? Caring for yourself? Not being a burden on your family? Something else? Here are other people's stories about what is most important in life. Jorge wants to see his niece get married. The doctors have offered me a different kind of treatment that won't cure my heart failure, but might help me feel a little bit better. Well, my niece is getting married in a few months, and this is the most important thing in my life right now. I know there are no guarantees, and I might not make it to the wedding, but for now, this is the goal I'm striving for. My wish to see my niece get married is helping me make my medical decisions. Helen has strong religious beliefs. I have strong religious beliefs and they guide my medical decisions. For instance, it's against my beliefs to get a blood transfusion. I told my medical decision maker and my doctor that no matter what, I never want one, even if the doctor is recommending it. Ken wants to be independent. Living on my own and being independent is the most important thing to me. Look, I know there may come a time when I might not be able to care for myself and may need to go to a nursing home. I get that. But being independent is so important to me that I'll accept any treatment from the doctors if they think it may keep me going on my own, even surgery. But if their treatments will not give me the strength to keep me living on my own, then no, I wouldn't want that. Cynthia does not want to burden family. The most important thing to me is not to be a burden to my family. If I were ever in a situation where I could not take care of myself, like if my memory was gone or I couldn't wake up from a coma and my family had to take care of me, well, I couldn't live like that. It would be the worst thing in the world to me, even though my family may think differently. My family and my doctor know that my desire not to burden the family is my biggest concern and would affect the kind of medical care I want. Question number two. What experience have you had with serious illness? Have you had your own experience with serious illness? Do you remember someone close to you who was very sick or dying? Do you remember seeing someone on TV who was very sick or dying? Think about what went well, what did not go well, and why. If you were in these situations, what would you want for yourself? 
you may change your mind about how you feel over time. Take a moment to think about this. Question number three, can you imagine health situations that would be worse than death? Do you feel that life is always worth living no matter what serious illness, disability, or pain you are experiencing? Or are there certain health experiences that would make your life not worth living, such as never being able to wake up from a coma or get out of bed, never being able to talk to your family or friends, never being able to live on your own, having to be kept alive on machines, or being in pain. You may change your mind about how you feel over time. Take a moment to think about this. Question number four. How do you balance quality of life with medical care? Sometimes illness and the treatments used to try to help people live longer can cause pain, side effects, and the inability to care for yourself. If you had serious illness, what would be important to you? A. You would want treatments to try to live as long as possible. You would not want to stop treatment even if you were in pain, could not feed or care for yourself, or needed machines to live. Or B. You would want to try treatments for a period of time, but you would not want to suffer. If after a period of time, the treatments did not help or you were suffering, you would want to stop. C. You would want to focus on your quality of life and being comfortable, even if it meant having a shorter life. Or D. You are not sure. Take a moment to think about this. Question number five. Have you changed your mind about what is important to you over time? Here is one example. Your situation may be different. Because of all my medical problems, I was getting too weak to take care of myself. The doctors thought it would be best for me to live in a nursing home. I had always said that having to live in a nursing home would be the worst thing ever, even worse than dying. No way would I go. Well, I had to go. And now that I'm here, it's not so bad. They have activities and lots of extra help for my breathing problems. It's funny, I never thought I would change my mind about this, but I did. And everything has turned out okay. Let's review the five questions. Question one, what is most important in your life? Family and friends? Religion? Living on your own? Question two, what experiences have you had with serious illness or death? Question three, can you imagine health experiences worse than death? Question four, is it most important to you to A, try to live as long as possible even with pain or disability? B, try treatments for a period of time but stop if you are suffering? Or C, 
Focus on quality of life and comfort, even if your life is shorter. And question five, have you changed your mind about what matters most in your life over time? Every situation is different. Ask these questions again when an important medical decision needs to be made. Here is an example of people thinking through the five questions. Your situation may be different. My doctor gave us some questions to think about, you know, to help us decide what is important in life and, and how that might affect our medical decisions. First, we were asked to think about what makes our life worth living. Well, that was an easy one for me. Living as long as I can with my husband and my family. For me, what makes my life worth living is, is being able to talk with my family and friends, especially my grandkids. If I were so sick that I couldn't do that, well, then my life would not be worth living. I know this. Next. We were supposed to think about past experiences with serious illnesses we have had or have watched other people go through, like our friends or our family or even someone on TV. Actually, my husband and I just watched a news story about a woman who couldn't wake up from a coma. We were then supposed to imagine what it would be like if, what it would be like to be in a similar situation like this woman. What would make our lives not worth living. If I were in a coma like that woman, and I couldn't wake up to talk to my family, I know my life would not be worth living. If I were ever in that type of situation, I, I certainly wouldn't want it to drag out. My quality of life would be the most important thing to me at this point, not how long I have to live or how many treatments the doctors have to offer. I had the opposite reaction to the woman's situation. Trying to live, to see my grandkids grow up is so important to me that I realized I would want to at least try a short trial of treatment, not forever, but for a little while to see if I might get better. I would even be willing to try a breathing machine or a feeding tube if the doctors think it might help me. See, this is where my wife and I differ. Uh, before I got really sick, it would have been important for me to try all sorts of medical treatments to try to live as long as possible. But after being so sick these past few months, I've changed my mind. If I were in that poor woman's situation, the most important thing for me would be comfortable and not in pain. I do feel differently. For me, it's okay to live through some hard situations, even some pain, for the chance of getting better and maybe living a little bit longer. But you never know. Over time, you might change your mind, just like I did. <laughs> yes, I might. But for now, I think we both learned a lot about what each of us feels is most important for our medical care. I agree. Um, so that's sort of the end of our program here. Um, and we really wanted to say we've got actually 40 minutes to answer any of your questions. And I'm going to ask Sarah and Sarah to sort of come up with me. Um, now's your time to ask any questions that you ever wanted to ask, either to a physician or to our legal colleagues here, um, about advanced directives, advanced care planning, planning for your future. 
there's one um, gap in your directive, and that is hospice. Mm -hmm. I'd like you to discuss hospice. The one in the hospital, the one freestanding outside, because I went through this with my husband a few months ago, mm -hmm. and I know how he felt, and I think he wanted a freestanding hospice. So you mean about the different kinds of hospice organizations? Yeah, so um, for people who don't know, it's a little bit different from advanced care planning, but people can talk about whether or not they might want hospice in the future. I'll just touch on that briefly and happy to talk to you more about the clinical workings of it. But hospice is for people who have a diagnosis of six months or less. It can be given in a hospital setting, it can be given in a nursing home setting, and it can be given in a home setting. And people sometimes feel differently about where they want to get that care and at what point they want it. And I'm happy to talk more about hospice maybe after we talk about advanced care planning. You didn't work through hospice at home, and when he's incapable of being looked after, we had round the clock care, mm -hmm. when I could not look after him. He went to, to, to a freestanding hospital. Now, five days. Mm -hmm. He was very clear what he wanted. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, is there another document needed for the um, sort of the gray zone that, that while well, someone is seriously ill, but before? incapacity sufficient that the agent is activated, is there a document about release of medical information to these family members, but before the agent, you know, officially legally qualifies for it, but yeah. just I'm unclear on if they will, you know, accept their access to status and, the, and for the medical information. So the question was, um, if... Uh, for purposes of determining if your advanced directive has triggered yet, so if you have actually lost the ability, um, how do your family members get access to medical information to make that determination? Um, and that's a really good question because that is a bind that uh, families can find themselves in. Um, they don't know if their authority to step in has triggered yet because they don't have access to their family members' uh, medical information. And sometimes if there's a conflict in the family or uncertainty, families don't want to ask for it um, or the family member isn't willing to to give it. And so sometimes we draft advanced directives to say specifically that information can be released for the limited purposes of determining whether the advanced directive has triggered yet. Um, and another way to draft it is to have your advanced directive immediately actionable. So um, immediately actionable means that your agent can work alongside you. Now remember, an agent is someone who is like your delegate. Uh, they don't get to step in and override your decisions. You've just authorized them to be another spokesperson for you. So um, if, even if your advance directive um, is immediately actionable, you've said my uh, healthcare agent can act, if you still have the ability to make decisions for yourself, you should still be doing that, and your clinician should still be deferring to you. Can I, um, maybe I'll just give the clinician perspective on that, um, because I think what you're asking is, it's hard to know as a family member, when when does this document kick in, is well, that? It's really more curious leading up to that, you know, 
more mm -hmm. clear-cut line, but when it might be shared with other family members that you also wish to participate in the group. Yeah, <laughs> so... You know, when <laughs> will doctors and hospitals release what you really want released? So there's a healthy discussion. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of getting access to people's medical information, there are release of medical information forms. We didn't talk about them here, but they can be filled out by your loved one, and they can direct where they want that information to go. And you could have your, this happens all the time, where in my geriatric clinic, I have someone who writes the healthcare agent, but will tell me it is okay to give medical information to any of my family members. And then that gives me the ability to do that. So it's a little bit of documentation that can go on that can help that. Form or we just write it in? So any, every hospital has a release of medical information, yeah. In the yellow? Just a quick question. You, yes, we all want to do this. Yes, it's a good idea. You see a lot of fake dramas on TV of what happens if you don't. What's the reality you talked about in the real world? What happens if we don't? Um, so I would say the horror stories that you've seen on television are true. <laughs> and the reason that I do what I do and I feel so passionately about it is because I have seen some terrible, terrible things in my own family and in the hospital. And so I think, again, what drives me to try to get people to do this ahead of time is how can we, you know, not end up there. It's who's it turned over to is what I'm really getting at. So you mean if you don't make decisions for yourself and then you end up somewhere and somebody needs to make medical decisions for you. Um, yeah, so I'm going to let you talk about the law piece, and then I'll talk about the medical piece. Yeah, so the technical legal answer, um, unless you're at the VA, if you're at the VA, they're a federal system, they have their own default decision-making structure. The technical legal answer in California is that you do not have a surrogate to make decisions for you, and they would need to get a court order. But I will tell you that that is not the clinical reality, that clinicians will turn to whomever is available. Um, and a lot of times that works out and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so there's a big gap between the law and clinical practice, and that's a very interesting conversation we can have for another day. Um, but alluding to the slide that Sarah presented earlier, um, the consequences of not planning ahead um, are... And it's not just about medical decision-making, it's about financial decision-making as well. And so your clinicians are, are much... Um, more able to turn to other people than, say, your bank is or uh, your mortgage broker or your um, landlord or whoever it might be. And so what we often see, the first signs are of trouble with financial decision-making, um, and no one has planned ahead for that piece of it. And those are much harder stops for people. Um, and of course, at some point, the financial decision-making becomes a problem for medical decision-making because you have to pay for your care at some point. Um, and that is... Um, um, a much more difficult thing for families to do for very good reason. Um, we don't want just anyone to step in and manage and take control of someone's finances. Um, so that's why you know we're just focusing on medical decisions today, but the reality is that these are financial and legal decisions too. Um, and so not planning ahead for medical decisions might be one thing, but the rest of it really can't be ignored. Um, and now let's talk about the clinical reality. <laughs> 
Um, so if you roll into an emergency room, regardless of what you may want or may have wanted, it's what we call full court press. They're going to do everything and anything to you because nobody knows. Um, and, and for some people, that is fine. But here's the problem. That person ends up in the hospital. You end up on my medical service. And the first thing that we do is start combing the world to find anyone who may know you. So maybe you don't have an advanced directive. Maybe you don't have a surrogate decision maker. But we're trying to find any information about you. And what often happens is that random people in your life show up. And family members, this is when two siblings have different ideas about what they want to do. You know, a wife and a child feel differently about what they want to do. And I have seen it completely tear families apart. So in some ways, I often talk about advanced care planning as giving a gift to anybody that you care about. Because I'm going to tell you right now and any of you in this audience who have played the role of a surrogate decision maker for someone else, it is one of the hardest jobs to do. So not only will you possibly not get the medical care that you want and be in a bad situation, but your family then is com you know, completely burdened um, by not having someone who actually has power to make decisions for you or really know what you want. So should you be driving, you know, should you have something in your wallet that it says, you can find my advanced health care directive at Bank of America on Irving Street, or I mean, how how do you, short of carrying this around with you all the time, how do you prevent that from happening? So um, we are always looking for solutions that work, and that makes total sense to me. So absolutely, you know, we have our you know donor things on our um, driver's license. It'd be great if we could have the same thing for advanced directives. I'll tell you, with technology, things are coming where all of this stuff could be in your smartphone or can be in a chip, that kind of thing. And there are um, companies out there that are trying to create cloud-based things where basically all hospitals can access this information. I will tell you, and again, this is another reason why it's so important to have someone who can make medical decisions for you, it's a lot easier to track down a loved one than it is an advanced directive form. And again, when hospitals can't find these forms, which they often can't, you sort of need people who can, you need to be prepared to speak up for yourself or your family members do, or you need someone who knows where that form is. Is that a yeah. if In a real situation, if you're rushed into the emergency room and maybe you're not conscious, and your healthcare directive is with your um, internist. Does the hospital connect with the internist? What happens? So, and again, this, I mean, this is real life, folks. I'm going to tell you, they do not. Nine times out of ten, they do not. There are all these different, uh, you know, electronic medical records. Oh, I'm sorry. She asked, if you roll into the emergency room and your advanced directive is with your internist, you know, can they talk to each other? What happens with that? I would say if there's time and the ER physician actually knows your internist or they work in the same hospital system, say at the VA, that has great electronic medical records, sometimes that information can be found. But as I was saying, nine times out of ten, 
it's not found. And again, you know, tech companies are trying to figure this out now. How, how can we keep people's information safe because it's protected medical information, but then have it available for this very sort of issue? But I think it's important for people to know, as important as it is to fill out that form, it's just as important to sort of tell everybody you know and love about that form and give it copies to other people because, again, they're not always at the point of care when you need them. And I, I just to add to that, I mean, something that can be a very difficult thing to think about um, is that, you, you know, part of planning is to start planning before the call to the ambulance is made. Um, and before your rush to the hospital. So uh, a piece of planning is not just what do you want to have happen if you're in a hospital or a long-term care setting or another place, but do you want EMT called in the first place? Is it a good idea to go to the hospital at this point? Because as Rebecca is describing, there's a whole host of defaults in our healthcare system that are pushing in a certain direction. And it's fine if that's the direction that you want to be flowing with. But if it's not, then you might want to think about, do I want to enter that tide at all? Um, and that can be a difficult conversation to have with family members, but if you are at that point, that's, that's sort of a practical thing to think about, is do we pick up the phone and call 911? Do we bring you into the hospital? Um, because that is what's risk- what you're risking when you're, when you're entering that setting. And, and the one thing I just want to say really quickly, too, because I think a lot of our discussions have been, you know, in the last few minutes, focused around what happens if you just drop and, you know, wind up in, in, in the emergency room. And, and really... Advanced care planning is not just about that very sort of end of life. Again, it's about you getting the care that you want. And so, again, many of you yourselves have probably had to make medical decisions sort of over time. And, again, advanced care planning is so that you, not when you lose capacity, but right now, can say, here are the things that are important to me. And so, doctor, when you're asking me or telling me that you want to give me this medical treatment, I can say to you, well, what, what is my life going to be like? And does, do those two things line up? And then a lot of people, when, you know, if and when they lose the capacity to make medical decisions, and I'll just give you an example as a geriatrician, someone who has dementia, those people can live for 10 years but they need someone else to make medical decisions for them, and there's all these decisions over time. So again, by giving your family sort of this gift of letting them know what's important to you, it can help not only you make your medical decisions now, but all those other medical decisions over time. So I just wanted, again, reframe. We're not just talking about CPR and life support. We're talking about sort of all the decisions that you might be able to make. Back in the with the green collar and the black shirt. <laughs> I'll get I'll get over there. I promise. What if you have a situation where you have an elderly family member who does have all the paperwork you're talking about written down and has a long-term family physician of the old school and feels he can interpret it himself of what it says or the gray area? Um, how do you go about working with that? And she doesn't want to change. <laughs> So that is very hard, um, and I'm sorry if you're going through that. I, you know, I think, um, so here's the thing. People are allowed to make bad decisions, and people are allowed to make bad decisions about who their doctor is. And I think as long as everybody's clear about the ramifications of what that might be, 
then that's the decision if, as long as your loved one has the capacity to make that decision. So I'm going to tell you an example. I often bring up the example of my grandparents. So my grandfather was very clear about what he wanted. And when you asked my grandmother, she said that she would do exactly the opposite. But if you asked my grandfather, he said that he still wanted her to be his decision maker, knowing full well that she would change his decisions. So I'm just going to say people are allowed to make bad decisions, unfortunately. Um, But I think as long as there's clear dialogue about that between your loved one, that's that's the best I got, but that's a hard situation to be in. So, so when and I'll let you chime in here. Um, yeah, there's some there's someone for I would say that the laws, as you know, Sarah and I have done a lot of research in this area. The laws unfortunately protect clinicians more than they protect patients, and that's just the reality. But like I said, the best you can do is have a clear discussion. And frankly, if you feel that there is an ethical issue, there are ethics committees and ethic boards. I hope it doesn't get to that, but okay. This side of the room. (laughs) I received from an organization called Compassion and Choices specific paragraphs for a directive, a healthcare directive for dementia, specifically for dementia. And I'm wondering if the city of California recognizes these specific dementia-related paragraphs. Um, yes, they do. I know the um, the attorney who runs Compassion... I'm sorry, was it Compassion and Choices, or was yeah. it... Oh, Compassion and Choices. Okay. There's a couple of groups, and they all sound the same. Um, yes. Basically, California recognizes whatever instructions you want to put in there. We have one of the more permissive statutes in the country. So any health decision, anything you want to say about it, you can put in there. Now, let me tell you, again, the practical realities of getting your wishes implemented in the healthcare system. Um, withdrawing hand feeding and withdrawing other forms of care in dementia can be a very challenging thing to have actually implemented by healthcare teams. Um, and so, something to think about in before choosing your location of care is talking to your physician about their views of care and seeing if there's alignment um, of your views and your goals with their views and their goals. And this is still challenging because remember that healthcare is provided in teams and those teams might rotate over time and within the same day. So you can never fully guarantee that your team is going to be on board with the choices that you make. Um, But I think it's important to at least engage them in those conversations and see if you can find allies in the healthcare system. This goes along with the other half of my question, which had to do with the new law in California regarding physician-assisted end of life, and whether somebody who has been appointed your guardian or the individual who will make decisions for you, can they make that decision? No, they cannot. So um, the it's the California End of Life Option Act is what you're referring to, which is California statute that permits um, a patient to request and a physician to choose um, whether to work together to end the patient's life by a prescription. 
Um, and so a that that request has to be made. There's actually several requests that have to be made in a process that the patient would have to go through. Um, the patient has to have the mental capacity to make that request um, and has to be able to self-administer the drug. Um, so m- the vast majority of patients in uh, um, with dementia will not be able to participate in the End of Life Option Act, and their surrogates cannot choose it for them. And last part of the question, if you have a, a, a directive, if you have a health care directive, can you make an addendum to it and, a, and, and relate back to it, or must it be completely rewritten if you add a paragraph? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, I would say you run the risk of potentially creating confusion. So his question was, if you already have an advanced directive, can you just keep adding on to it, like stapling new pages to it? Um, and I would say that if you add new pages, you run the risk of creating confusing or conflicting wishes. Um, and so we actually recommend if you're going to write a new directive, just destroy the old one um, and add and just start fresh with a new document and make sure that everyone has it. It will have the new date on it so everyone will know, um, you know, when you filled it out, there won't be any confusion about potential um, conflicts with previous wishes. It's a good question. Yeah. I have a legal question. Uh, in terms of insurance, I think that some insurance policies are void if you commit suicide. How is that? How does that gray area of physician-assisted end of life? How does that figure in the legal aspect of, of insurance settlements? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the question was, um, if a patient participates or requests the End of Life Option Act, which is physician-assisted death, um, what are the ramifications for insurance coverage? And what the California law says is if the patient follows the steps in the law, the process in the law, with their health care provider and they end their life using that method, that will not be considered suicide. And insurance companies, um, life insurance companies, companies, annuities, you know, whatever financial products you might have are not permitted um, to discriminate against you or your family based on uh, the fact that you took advantage of that option. When you were talking about carrying, being a card carrier, giving somebody a card for um, identifying that they have advanced care directives, do you encourage using ICE at all, um, your smartphone, and there is also a card for that. Yeah, there. Um, so the question was using. It's called ICE, right? In case, on, in case of emergency, on your phone. I think what can be helpful, absolutely, is having whoever your medical decision maker is, whoever your surrogate is, have that be your contact for sure. Um, the American Bar Association sort of came up with a little app. I think it's called. Is it My Wishes? Mm-hmm. I think it's called My Wishes that you can download on your phone. Um, You can't get through it through ICE, but at least it's something that's on your phone that can at least direct people to where your your things are. But um, I feel like... My uh, my husband's in the uh, in the audience, and I should probably do my ice thing uh, as it is now. But what I don't know is if if you do you know can you put in notes 
Into the ice, into ice. Yeah, but if it has, says ice by your agent's name, uh huh, that would be the first person that would call. Yeah, because I'm just wondering too. You know, I'm I'm brainstorming because clearly I haven't used it. But I think if you had your agent there, and then if you could add notes such as this is what my advance directive says, or this is where it is. Yeah, yeah. But I have to say, just on that point, clearly, you know, we live in Silicon Valley. And it sort of amazes me that we haven't sort of figured out easier ways to do this, but hopefully that's coming. What is ICE? It's in case of emergency. I, I, I just, you know, I'm learning about it myself, but it's on your iPhone. It's on a, like an Apple iPhone in case of emergency. Or Android. Or Android, okay. Have a directive uh, and what I would mean, So, um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. So the question was, what what do you do with your advance directive? Where where do you put it? Um, and I'll tell you what I tell my patients in my clinic, and I'll tell you what I you know tell my ninety eight year old grandmother, which is that you make as many copies as possible, and you give it to every hospital that you may possibly visit in a 25-mile radius. So, you know, if you're going to go visit, I, honestly, and if you know that you're going to go visit, you know, your, your family in another state, you might want to at least bring it with you. Um, like I said, there are no easy ways sort of around this. People do create, you know, PDF documents. You can email these to your family and friends. You can give it to as many people as possible, and I think that's the best way to make sure that they're going to be available at the point of care. But you can, if you know that you frequent a hospital or you live near a hospital, it is completely reasonable to go there and, and put your, your advance directive in that medical record. I want to just add to what you said, just from experience. Uh, the person who you designated as the person with the directive, uh, decision maker should have multiple copies and should take them right to the hospital and really pass them out right there when things are happening. And every time a shift changes, mm -hmm. make sure that they know that this is the directive that's in place. That is a great point. <laughs> yeah. Should be make sure it's in the chart. Yeah, that is an excellent point. Um, I don't know if people heard that, but basically, if you are the decision maker and you have one of your loved ones' advanced directive, make a million copies, and if that person does go into the hospital, not only do you provide it when they get admitted, if, especially if you're there, but in shift changes, you might have to present it again, and you might need to, to ask specifically, has this been uploaded into my medical record? And so I'll tell you, Oftentimes what happens, people get admitted, these forms get into a paper chart, there isn't enough time often that they get scanned into the medical record, that person moves floors, their paper chart doesn't come with them. Again, it's sort of the same thing, so I think that's an excellent point about being a good advocate uh, for your loved one. 
Yeah, I did mine through Kaiser, and I assume, and I think I remember them saying that Kaiser will always know about it as long as you're using your Kaiser card. But if you're not in the Kaiser hospital. Right. You know, Kaiser and the, and the VA are very similar. They have great electronic medical records, and you can find things across different sites, but it's if you go out, outside. Yeah. Uh, and a bunch of the slides that I think you talked about, you mentioned CPR, and I vaguely remember a, a radio lab thing or something about these physicians that dealt with uh, the other people, and they wouldn't want to have CPR done on themselves. Is there a particular reason why CPR is mentioned so often in there? So, so the question is, you know, there was a, a studies that have been done that show that physicians, actually for themselves, often don't will say that they often don't want CPR for themselves, and the question is, why does it come up? All the time, and I have to say again, I'm giving you like the behind the scenes from the med, you know from the medical perspective. Your doctor's worst fear is that you're going to come into the emergency room, or you're going to be in clinic, or you're going to be in the hospital, and your heart's going to stop, and we won't know what you want. That is our biggest fear, and because we have seen, especially for people who are elderly, frail very sick or at the end of their life, when we do those things, when we try to resuscitate people, the end result is so much worse with people living sort of after the fact when we've tried to resuscitate them, even if that, if that works. So I have to say, the reason that your doctors are asking you about this over and over and over again is honestly it's the thing that keep, keeps us up at night. So what are the bad things that can happen? Oh. That's a whole, we could, we could be here for hours. But I'll just say, I mean, you know, it really depends upon, you know, we see on TV a young person, they stop breathing, their heart stops, they get shocked, and they sit up in bed, and then they walk out of the hospital. And I can tell you that I don't think I've ever seen that happen. And especially for people who are older, I mean, we know, right, sort of as we get older, you sprain your ankle and, like, you're out for months, right? It just takes longer to heal. So imagine if your heart stops or you stop breathing and somebody does CPR and all these things to you. Uh, we could, like, like I said, I could spend all night talking to you about the bad things that I've seen, but a lot of the things that I've seen are brain damage, being bed-bound sort of for the rest of your life after this, having to live on a machine because you can't breathe on your own, uh, being, even if you survive all of that, being so weak that you end up in a nursing home and unable to live on your own, we could go on and on and on. Um, but like I said, there's a reason that this is what keeps us doctors up at night because we have done very bad things to people when we were trying to do good things. I have a 96-year-old mother that is living in an assisted living facility. There is a medical person there. I think it's an LVN. And they do not do CPR on anybody. They will not, they do not have a defibrillator on the premises. And any high school has a defibrillator on the premises for their athletes. And I'm Curious as to California law, uh, why there are no regulations regarding any kind of basic 
health care or provision mm -hmm. uh, for in assisted living facilities that's full of vulnerable seniors? This is a great question. So the question was, um, your 96-year-old mother is in an assisted living facility, and the nurses there are not prepared and are not going to provide any medical care. And that is because assisted living facilities are not certified. They're not permitted to provide medical care. Um, nursing homes are. So we have a spectrum of long-term care. We usually think of either home or nursing home, but there's actually quite a bit in between, including care in the home, um, assisted living, board and care. They're called different things in different states, and they're even called different things in California. So um, it's great that you have um, discovered this, because actually a lot of people don't find out what services are actually available in their care setting until... Um, it's kind of too late. The, so assisted living in California is a little bit of the Wild West. Um, they're supposed to be non-medical non facilities for a reason because a lot of people wanted an alternative to nursing homes that were really kind of institutional and restrictive and clinical. Um, and so at least in theory, assisted living facilities are less institutional. They're more integrated into the community. Um, the trade-off is that they're not medical facilities and they're not providing that care. Um, so there are a lot of advocates um, in California who are trying to figure out what is the right balance um, for assisted living facilities. Should they be regulated more like nursing homes or should they be treated like, you know, your apartment or your condo that you might be living in? Um, uh, in the community. A really great resource um, for the public that we're lucky to have in California is called California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. And they have a website that has a lot of very detailed fact sheets on legal issues, um, not just around nursing homes and assisted living, but around elder abuse and a number of other uh, things. So I highly recommend. They also have a, a legal consult line that you can call. So an advanced directive in California is usually a combined document that allows you to appoint an agent. So it has the durable power of attorney piece in it. And it allows you to state your goals of care. There are other forms that are just the durable power of attorney for healthcare form, if that's just the piece that you want to focus on. Um, the picture that I showed on the slide is the ABA Commission on Law and Aging's multi-state durable power of attorney for healthcare. So that one is good in all 50 states. Um, I will tell you that it's a little bit more restrictive to fill out because it is trying to be compliant with all 50 state requirements. Um, the California easy to read advanced directive that we have passed out to everyone today does contain the durable power of attorney portion if you want to just do that. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.